The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. And today we're going to talk about a health topic that's actually relatively new and that a lot of people don't think about it and just our knowledge of this is fairly new. Um, it's our looking at our DNA and um, our genetics and treating um, according to what's going on there. Our methylation and detox pathways are different for each of us and small mutations or SNPs in these pathways can make a big difference in how we respond to the growing toxicity in our environment in our world and our environment around us and um, it's very important that we actually understand this to get better in our journeys today we're speaking with Cynthia Smith Cynthia is studying nutrition both through Chicago City Colleges and Hunting College of Health Sciences obtaining her certified clinical nutritionist certification Cynthia co-authored the snippet compendium one welcome to the show Cynthia thank you Rebecca I'm happy to be here um, you know, this is an exciting topic for me. Actually, when I started getting into looking at genetics, I I realized how important it was and how much it's not really talked about unless you get into that world. But how did you get involved in doing this? It was by accident. I was studying Chinese medicine. I thought that that would be my kind of retirement career. Previously, I was an engineer and then an IP attorney, and I thought, okay, I, I want to do something that I enjoy. So I went back to school, started studying Chinese medicine, and about that time, a NOLA special came on TV. It's it's our public broadcasting station, and it was called Ghost in Your Genes. And I watched it. I was intrigued. I ordered a copy of the CD. Then I ordered multiple CDs and sent them to all my friends and my family. But after that, after I saw that, I thought, you know what? This This is the area that... I need to focus on because our bodies run on biochemistry, our, our enzymatic pathways, our biochemistry, and all of that is determined uh, by our genetics interacting with our environment, and that's our food, our toxins. And so I left the study of Chinese medicine after I was there for about two and a half years, and I moved over and started studying nutrition, started going back to school, taking classes in biochemistry, uh, Institute of Functional Medicine classes, this type of thing. And then eventually I was able to pull all that together with the genetics and it it made sense. Uh, You know, I 
it, it makes sense to me. I mean, when you want to treat a person for who they are and what they need, it makes sense to go down to the core of their blueprint of who they are. And uh, I'm surprised that we don't do this more. And there, there seems to be a little bit of a, a push to even not look at this by our mainstream medicine. But I'm sure that will change when we realize how important this is. Um, what what does it mean when you do look at somebody's genetics for their treatment? What exactly are you looking for? Well, I typically, it, it takes me about six or seven hours per person. So I dedicate a full day to a person and I start off by looking at all of their medical data, any testing they've previously had. I have them do a 19-page questionnaire so I'm seeing what their health issues are and maybe what their family health issues are. I do all of that first, and in my mind, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, okay, we're going to have issues with, you know, certain genetics. And so when I get to the genetic part, I can see that, yes, the symptomology is lining up with some of the, their genetic deficiencies. And so after I combine all that, then I talk with them for two or three hours, and I further refine their health history, and I do what's called a timeline where I, I align their uh, health issues with certain, you know, life occurrences because oftentimes you can make links and those actually link back to uh, a person's DNA. So, for example, uh, somebody who starts, uh, let's say a young woman starts having issues when she's 14 or 15 um, that she didn't have previously, then I know we're dealing with some enzymes and some DNA that have to do with breaking down estrogen and progesterone. And Usually in, the, in that case, there's some deficiency in those enzymes so that when estrogen and progesterone start to come into play and those enzymes cannot break down the estrogen and progesterone properly, that, that people will start, women will start having issues. That also crosses over to their neurotransmitters because some of these enzymes are shared for breaking down both estrogen and some neurotransmitters called catecholamines. So the timeline is helpful for me to link up, you know, certain things that are happening at certain times. Another example would be somebody who had a concussion. Um, another example would be somebody who took uh, an antibiotic in the fluoroquinolone family, and they had uh, SNPs in a particular area called G6PD. I could link those two things together and know that we have to really work on that, the pathways involved with G6PD, which is... Uh, a pentose phosphate pathway. So all these things interplay. We don't just look at the genetics, but we have to look at the genetics as they're affected by the environment. Uh, you know, that that's really interesting. There's um, a lot of talk that we can turn our genes off and on. So do you find when you're looking at that history that that might be something that's happening? Oh, yes. Yes, yeah. it's really interesting. There's been studies by um, different people where you can actually change your genetic expression, you know, in a, in a matter of days. So, for example, if somebody goes on a, you know, like a vegetarian, I'm not advocating vegetarianism. But if somebody switches from a really high-fat, super-processed diet and they go to clean, you know, like vegetarian or they go to grass-fed meat and, you know, clean foods, no genetically modified grains, the expression of their DNA starts to change for the better, right? Their, their, uh, their lipid profile changes, their neurotransmitter status changes, 
because all of these things are coded for by our DNA. So you can directly impact the genetic expression. Now, you can't necessarily change your genes. To actually change your DNA requires like a exposure to radiation, but we can change our genetic expression. And oftentimes people wonder why two generations ago did we not, for example, see many children on the spectrum when our DNA hasn't changed. So the question is, what's changing that's causing an increase in autism, that's causing an increase in dementia, that's causing an increase in metabolic disorders like type 2 diabetes at very young ages, where previously we didn't see this. Well, it's not the genes changing, it's the way they're being expressed. So you can think of the genes as piano keys, and we're playing those piano keys with our diet, with our exposures, uh, with things like um, high-frequency RF. I mean, nobody ever really talks about that. Genetically modified food, a glyphosate such as Roundup and some of these other herbicides that are used, they're playing our DNA piano keys in a bad way. Hmm. That's an interesting way to put it. So we just need to change how they're being played. And I'm assuming our exposure would also change that. So if we change our exposure, the genes would, you know, those SNPs would change? Well, the expression. So let's say we have a SNP in, I'll just use COMT because that's one that people talk about a lot. Catecholamine O-methyltransferase. If you've got two SNPs in catecholamine O-methyltransferase at a particular location in the DNA, let's say V158M, meaning um, there's a a nucleotide swap. Actually, the V and the M are amino acids, but at position 158 of that DNA segment that's coding for this particular enzyme. If you have a homozygous SNP there, the function of the enzyme might be reduced from 100% down to, let's say, 50 or 40%. So what that means is the best you're ever going to get out of that enzyme is the 40 or 50%, and you're never going to get to 100. So when I say, you know, you want to optimize function of your genome, you, you can optimize it to the best of its ability, but you can't necessarily get it to 100% if there's a SNP there. Now, in the case of... COMT, the way to get the maximum, even if it's a reduced number, is to make sure that it has its nutrient cofactor, which in this case is magnesium. So you can have a SNP, which can affect the overall operation of the resulting enzyme, and or you can be missing the nutrient cofactor. So if you've got a COMT homozygous in V158F, and let's say it's best that on a, on a good day you get 50% enzymatic activity. That's only if you have magnesium. You can further reduce that enzymatic activity if you don't have magnesium. So when you think about magnesium and you think about the foods that contain magnesium, they're healthy foods, right? They're not junk foods. So your enzymes have a capability, and those enzymes are determined by your DNA sequence. And those enzymes are further affected by our diet, what we're taking in. Do those enzymes have the tools they need, like the magnesium and the B vitamins and, you know, output from the Krebs cycle, which, which is dependent on vitamin B1, B2, B3. So it's a, it's a kind of an orchestra, right, where you have to have 
healthy diet, you have to maximize the capability of your enzymes, and you have to be conscientious about this all the time because it's very easy to degrade the efficiency of your enzymes if you have a poor diet, if your exposures are bad, if you're around a lot of toxins, so things like that. Um, so can you just tell us exactly what a SNP is? A SNP stands for single nucleotide polymorphism. And one of the easiest ways to think about this is I think everybody's familiar with the DNA double helix, right? It's like a ladder that somebody has twisted at the top and the bottom. Okay, so what happens is each one of those ladder rungs has two uh, nucleobases, or we call them nucleotides for short. Those two nucleotides, um, there's an expected pair based on a lot of research. So there's an expected pair of nucleotides. Now, if one of those nucleotides is the incorrect nucleotide on that rung, then the resulting amino acid might be different. So let's just kind of parse this out. So if we take the DNA ladder and we flatten it out, right, and we unzip it down the middle, messenger RNA comes in and copies those ladder rungs. Actually, they're half ladder rungs. Copies the ladder rungs, carries the copy out of the nucleus, takes it to a ribosome, and then it's very mechanical. I'm, I'm totally simplifying this, but for every three nucleotides in a sequence, another uh, RNA will go out and select an amino acid. So let's say we have a cytosine... Well, let me do it differently. Let's say we have an A, an A, and a B. A, A, and B means that we're going to go and take a glycine amino acid. Now, the glycine is coming from our food, and we're going to take that amino acid glycine, and we're going to, we're going to put it on a string, like it's a pearl. Then we're going to count the next three. Now, it, maybe it's like uh, B, B, C. That's going to ask for a valine, so the valine is going to come. Anyway... These amino acids are strung together into the hundreds or thousands. There's a beginning and an end. When that amino acid is built, that's an enzyme. Now, what's an enzyme? An enzyme is an amino acid chain that does a job. The job could be uh, breaking down catecholamines. The job could be uh, liver detoxification in a certain pathway. The job could be uh, something like a carrier protein where you're moving, let's say, vitamin B12 from your serum, from your blood into the cell where it actually does its job. So these enzymes or carrier proteins, are the shape of them are dictated by our DNA, and our DNA has mistakes in it in the form of nucleotides. And so those nucleotide mistakes will translate into something um, that will alter the enzyme uh, that would make a, you know, a, a little curly cue, the wrong, you know, angle, maybe the docking station for the, for the nutrient cofactor might not be as robust as it should. But those SNPs or those nucle the single nucleotide polymorphisms in the DNA may or may not affect the shape of the amino acid. And there's been a lot of research out there where They've determined, at least to date, what nucleotide swaps in the DNA ladder affect the shape of the resulting um, uh, carrier protein, enzyme, or receptor. 
So that's what we're looking at when we look at a variant report of SNPs. Okay. Uh, obviously very complicated. So, well, if you, um, look on your bear, yeah. if you look on your bear report, you'll see like green, right? Two green. Yeah. That means the nucleotides are the expected nucleotides. You see a yellow. It means one nucleotide is expected and one is not. And so that would translate into 50% of the time at that location, the enzyme would have an issue. Now, if you have a red and a red, then that's indicate that, that indicates that 100% of the time that at that particular location um, of the DNA sequence, the translation to the amino acid will be wrong 100% of the time. Now, remember, one amino acid is one pearl on a very long necklace. Yeah. Okay, so we're, um, we're going to take a break. We're talking today with Cynthia Smith, who is the co-author of the Snippet Compendium 1. We're talking about your um, genetics and uh, how to go about treating this. We're going to be back shortly, and we're going to go into um, more detail about uh, what this all is. So tune in. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Ouch! What do you think of when you think of dental procedures? Well, when you think about it, the teeth and the rest of the body are strongly connected. What happens in one part affects the other. In the Tooth Body Connection with host Dr. Don Ewing, we'll explain more about these concepts as well as discuss the role that your teeth play in your overall health. You'll learn about amalgams and how removing them the wrong way can be toxic to your body. Tune in Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. The largest syndicated alternative health talk program has come to the Voice America Network. The Dr. Bob Martin Show is the program that will answer your health questions and help you to heal your own body of many different ailments. Each week, you'll hear the answers that Dr. Bob gives to his callers that help them to be their own doctor most of the time. We'll also discuss developments on the health care front and what you need to do to keep your body in top form. The Dr. Bob Martin Show airs Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. 
To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Falling Through the Cracks. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk, and I'm here today with Cynthia Smith. She is the co-author of the Snippet Compendium 1, um, which is a compilation of um, a lot of gene um, SNPs, they're called, that you can have going on. And so, Cynthia, can you just explain, I mean, one of the main things that people are looking at when they look at all of this is methylation. And what does that mean? Okay, methylation from a chemistry standpoint is simply the addition, this is the classic definition, it's simply the addition of a carbon and three hydrogens uh, to something. And in the case of what we're talking about here, methylation, this carbon with three hydrogens is supplied by uh, something called SAMe. SAMe is made in some biochemical pathway processes with emphasis on the folate and the B12 and then another enzyme called MAT. So when we talk about, when most people talk about methylation, they're talking about a type of folate called 5-methyltetrahydrofolate combining with B12 resulting in something called methionine Methionine is then acted upon by another enzyme called MAT in order to make SAMe. Now, SAMe is, you can think of SAMe as like a waiter in a restaurant and carrying a tray and handing out CH3, carbon with three hydrogens, to all these other enzymes that are also in these pathways. And so, for example, there's probably about 200 enzymes that require that that methyl group. Called, we call SAMe a methyl donor. It's donating a methyl group to all of these other enzymes that are methyl transferases. Okay, so that's one definition of methylation. The other definition of methylation, again, where this process is occurring is in the liver um, and what we call, there's phase one and phase two. One of the primary pathways in phase two liver detoxes methylation. And again, we need SAMe to be doing its thing with these other methyl transferases in order to detoxify many things in our liver. And those many things include our hormones. Um, methylation is a primary hormone detoxifier um, as our sulfation and glucuronidation, but we're not talking about those. Heavy metals, so people with issues with methylation have a harder time clearing heavy metals and they'll tend to have higher mercury or lead levels um, and on and on and on. So the methylation pathway, what we refer to as the methylation pathway in the liver is very complex, but ultimately one of the jobs of this pathway besides making SAMe is to detoxify in phase two uh, liver detox. So some of the, some of the things we can do to support this methylation pathway, which is so critical, is to look at these different enzymes um, and how they're functioning, which is based on your genetics. So that's part of the 
the principle of, of looking at all these SNPs, right? We want to see how these pathways work. We want to see how you're detoxifying. The other thing about methylation, as these pathways are all working together, or these hundreds of enzymes are working together, there are other things that are happening um, in what we call these methylation pathways. We're making the parts, the purines and the primidines for new DNA. We're, we're making the building blocks for muscle tissue. We're making the building blocks for phospholipids, for, for fat, for our, our cell membranes. And so these pathways are not just to methylate for purposes of liver detoxification. Methylation encompasses a whole lot of things that our body needs to do to be healthy. We need healthy cell membranes. We need the purines and primidines to make new DNA and new RNA for replacement cells. We need creatine to make creatinine, to make our muscle tissue. We need uh, uh, phosphatidylcholine, you know, to build our cell membranes. And so this is all the interplay. So as you work in this field in these, with these genetics, besides increasing methylation in some cases, you also want to, to smooth out these biochemical pathways, make sure they're doing what they need to be doing. And in order to do that, you need to understand uh, where the SNPs are, how they're impacting, how they interact, right? Because they're not just in isolation, they interact. Um, what nutrient cofactors are needed? What dietary changes are needed? Uh, what things have to happen in the gastrointestinal tract that helps you become healthier? And again, methylation impacts that as well because our intestinal cells turn over very rapidly. And in order to support that rapid turnover of cells that line our gut mucosa, we need to be able to do methylation. Okay. So when you're, um, when somebody, you know, comes to see you and you're looking at all of this and um, where, what methods do you use to, to treat these genes? I know you said diet, but there, um, what typically happens in an appointment? So after I collect all the data, we sit down and talk and we, we go through history a little bit longer until I can get this timeline figured out. And people come with different health issues. Some women are having trouble getting pregnant, right? So we have to, that's kind of the focus. Some people have health issues like uh, gastrointestinal issues. They might have heartburn or they might have much more serious issues. Um, and we, we focus in on those issues and we, we look at the pathway. Now, something I see a lot are people that have issues, and this gets a little bit complicated, where their vitamin B6 is being depleted very rapidly. And the vitamin B6 depletion can be the result of many, many things. But the ultimate end result when you deplete vitamin B6 is there are pathways that are not working well. One of those, a number of those pathways have to do with making our neurotransmitters. Uh, another part of those pathways have to do with clearing ammonia. So those people might have high ammonia levels. Um, they might have a little bit of brain fog. So we have to go in and look at that one particular pathway that's the most B6 dependent, and that's called the transsulfuration pathway. And oftentimes I find that that pathway has to be addressed first because in, in that case, you have an issue where the enzymes are working too fast. And when they're working too fast, instead of making what they're supposed to make, which is glutathione, it, that pathway tends to make ammonia. 
tends to make more sulfates, tends to burn through a taurine, tends to deplete vitamin B6. And so we have to start with specific pathways, make sure they're working before we work on these other pathways. And for people like me who do this, we know which pathways to start with and how to step through things. And I usually set set up a plan that's like a three-phase plan that takes four or five months to implement because we have to work on something, see how we do, go in and adjust, go to the next step. Because as we adjust one area, other areas are impacted. So it's kind of a slow process. Um, I get a lot of people that come in and they've taken uh, methylfolate and they've taken methyl B12 and, and they get worse because they're addressing a pathway at the beginning that really should be addressed towards the end after everything else is, is cleaned up. Now, one of the things that also depletes vitamin B6 are high oxalate foods. High oxalate foods, and I, I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but I'm seeing this more and more. High oxalate foods are like the, the green juices. Let's say you're juicing spinach. You're eating a lot of sweet potatoes. And unwittingly, people who have this high oxalate diet, which is considered healthy, are depleting their vitamin B6 and affecting that pathway. Now, if they have SNPs in the enzymes, too, that require the vitamin B6, it becomes a, a, pretty, a pretty big mess to untangle. So it's not just the SNPs, the enzymes, it's also the diet, how the diet's impacting. Um, these pathways because it might be depleting something and vitamin B6 is a big one and once that happens now you're having issues with your GABA which are your, your, your common neurotransmitters and also your dopamine pathway. So um, you know you said you, you focus on ammonia first what does it look like if somebody has an issue with ammonia? Well you can you can detect ammonia issues uh, through different types of testing. I used to know the diagnostics and, and things I'll be looking for. Not only are they making high ammonia, are they depleting things like arginine and um, some of the other things that are needed to break down ammonia? Are they, do they have SNPs? Okay, so when, when you're breaking down ammonia, your body makes that a priority. We don't like high ammonia levels. And in, in order to break down the, the ammonia, there is a cost. There's a cost in the form of some amino acids and some vitamins, right? And ultimately, if ammonia is being broken down properly, it results in citrulline and nitric oxide. That's what we want. Over time, though, if too much ammonia is being uh, generated, then the resources the body needs to break it down start to become depleted, and so it, ammonia breakdown instead of breaking down to citrulline and nitric oxide, which we can handle, it's, our body will start breaking it down into something called a peroxynitrate or superoxide. And those two things are, are inflammatory. They're, they're, bad for, they're bad for our brains. They're, they're, they're just inflammatory. Now, our body has things to do to, to lower that inflammation, like an enzyme called superoxide dismutase, but people often have SNPs in the superoxide dismutase, or maybe they're low in manganese or magnesium, right? So th there's a ripple effect. And when you look at these enzymes in their proper pathways, in the order in which they operate, you can start to see where a person needs to have some work done. So if somebody's making a lot of ammonia, first we have to 
throttle back on the ammonia production. We have to look at vitamin B6. We might do something like a, a stopgap measure, like taking sodium potassium butyrate with their food um, to try to keep those ammonia levels down. But ultimately, the, what you really want to do is get those pathways moving again, build up the things that have been depleted so that they don't convert their ammonia to peroxynitrate and superoxide because we don't want those things. Those are inflammatory to our brain and over time can cause problems. So um, how long does it take to address that? I can't imagine that, you know, you just take some vitamins and then suddenly that pathway is clear. Does it take some time to work through that? It does, but we do testing at the beginning. So I look for ammonia markers. I look for a depletion of something like arginine. Um, I look to see if they're spilling certain uh, amino acids, meaning that their body's not utilizing them. They're just kind of peeing them out. Um, so I look at all these markers, and we start to, to address these pathways, and then we'll go back and recheck and see where we're at. Normally, though, it, you know, we can, we can turn things around pretty quickly in a pathway, but we have to make sure that that pathway is functioning before we move to the next pathway. We don't want to give somebody like a folate and a B12 and push the pathways that will also push excitatory neurotransmitters, meaning uh, epinephrine or adrenaline, if we don't have these other pathways cleared and operating well. We want the, this is how I analogize it. We want our braking system working before we push down the accelerator. And part of that braking system means that we have to get that transsulfuration pathway cleared up we have to get the GI health in order. Um, we have to address any hormone imbalances if we can up to that point. And we do all of that, and then we push on what we call the accelerator. And that's the addition of 5-methyltetrahydrofolate, uh, possibly uh, additional B12 in the form of methyl B12, and maybe some SAMe. Um, but, again, we have to do this in order. Yeah, so one of the most popular genes that people talk about is the MTHFR mutation, but from what you're saying, just knowing about it, I can tell that that's not the first thing that you should be looking at either. No, it's, it's funny because MTHFR, a methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase enzyme, is what brought this to the fore because early on they realized that MTHFR impacted so much because that MTHFR enzyme is almost in the center of all these other enzymatic pathways. But MTHFR is really an enzyme that converts one form of folate into the usable form of folate. So our bodies, when we eat leafy greens, we're getting some folate, but it's not the usable form. So that folate from, let's say, our green salad goes through a number, it's digested, and then it's go, it goes through a number of enzymatic steps to get to the usable form, which is 5-methyltetrahydrofolate. Now, it, the steps to get there, there's five, there's five enzymatic steps. There's two for an enzyme called DHFR and three for an enzyme called MTHFD1 before it even gets to MTHFR. Once it gets to MTHFR, that conversion occurs to 5-methyltetrahydrofolate if you don't have a SNP. If you have a SNP there, 
then, yeah, the conversion can occur, but maybe not as, as effectively as it should. Now, there's different SNPs in MTHFR that align with different levels of impairment of that enzyme. So five steps before MTHFR, then MTHFR, then that 5-methyltetrahydrofolate meets up with vitamin B12. They do a methyl swap. The methyl group is carried to methionine, and then ultimately it ends up at SAMe. But that's the center of all of these biochemical pathways. That's not the beginning. Well, and um, when you take B12 and folate, they're pushing some methylation pathways, which I can see if, you're, if your ammonia pathways or other things aren't working, how that would just kind of make you sicker. Yeah, what happens is if somebody has, let's say, an upregulation in the transsulfuration pathway and they start taking B12 and folate, they might feel pretty good for a few days and then they're going to feel very anxious and they're not going to feel well because now they're, they're increasing their ammonia generation because that pathway hasn't been addressed yet. And that pathway is downstream from the folate, you know, B12 swap. Um, the other thing which, which we haven't talked about is that folate has a kind of a reverse pathway, uh, counterclockwise pathway, where it meets up with some other uh, enzymes to form our serotonin, our dopamine, and then our dopamine can either be used as dopamine or dopamine can convert to something called norepinephrine and then epinephrine. And epinephrine is adrenaline. We don't want to be in a state of high adrenaline all the time because then we're not sleeping. Our adrenals are being burnt out because there's a big pull on cortisol. So that's why you have to be careful. If you start to push folate and other things aren't balanced, then you're going to also start to push your your flight-fight response, and we don't want that. We want to be in rest and digest. We're going to talk about this um, a little bit more after the break. Um, I think we're this is a really interesting uh, topic. We're talking today with Cynthia Smith, who is the co-author of the Snippet Compendium One, um, and we're going to we're talking today about genetics, methylation, and how this can impact your health. So tune in shortly after this break to learn more. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. The show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. 
To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Falling Through the Cracks. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. And I'm here today with Cynthia Smith. She is the co-author of the Snippet Compendium 1. We're talking about genetics, methylation, and what that means um, for your health and how you can approach that. So, Cynthia, I know um, right before the break you were talking about um, the neurotransmitters and, um, you know, adrenaline, adrenals, and how that can be affected. Is there a certain SNP that kind of looks at all of that? Um, no, there's, there's a whole, there's entire pathways that look at that. Um, so you, you have to look at the whole pathway, but I can tell you at the end of the pathway, um, we're right before the, the neurotransmitters broken down, let's say dopamine, uh, epinephrine, um, serotonin, there are enzymes that oftentimes are broken. So, for example, let's say somebody has the COMT enzyme, with, meaning that it's a down regulation. They have a really difficult time breaking down their dopamine and breaking down their epinephrine. So, that's the case where it's not the production necessarily of the neurotransmitter. It's the breakdown is very slow. Or the breakdown can be very fast. So, some of the MAOA SNPs are fast breakdown and some are slow breakdown. Um, but one of the things I wanted to mention is that when you're driving uh, some of these pathways, and those pathways have cofactors, so for example, norepi to epi requires uh, cortisol, you're going to start pulling on that cortisol, right? And that's, that's going to drain uh, your adrenals. So um, can you just explain a little bit what the COMT mutation does? It breaks down catecholamine. So it breaks down your, your hormone, estrogen, uh, primarily the 4-hydroxyestrone estrogen, and it breaks down um, your neurotransmitters, um, dopamine and epinephrine. There's also a crossover to serotonin. Um, but most people associate COMT with the dopamine and epinephrine. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to mention here, because I know you work in the Lyme area with, with clients who have Lyme's disease, Lyme's disease symptoms can be exacerbated by that transsulfuration pathway issue, right, where ammonia is being generated. It can also be, the symptoms can also be exacerbated if neurotransmitters are off, it, like if somebody is, is constantly in this high stress, high adrenaline uh, neurotransmitter status. Uh, the other thing, and that only happens over time, eventually the, it, they start to poop out, right? The adrenals go down. Um, so that, that high level can maintain for years and then one day it can. The same with the immune system. Um, methylation is really important for the gut. For, for the gut mucosa. So I see a lot of uh, clients who have the Lyme diagnosis 
and they just can't seem to get better. They're doing a lot of different things. Uh, but, but one of the links that is missed is that the immune system, uh, we look at SNPs and IgA. IgA is the portion of the immune system that really patrols the gut, the nasal passages, the lungs. I look at for SNPs there, and I also look at SNPs in another enzyme called FUT2. When I see that combination of FUT2 homozygous with a number of IgA SNPs, I know we're looking at likely issues with leaky gut, which therefore translates into an immune system upregulation, meaning that that person's immune system is very busy fighting things that it shouldn't be fighting. It's fighting uh, protein polypeptides that sneak through the leaky gut. If the immune system's busy attacking uh, polypeptides, uh, like gluten or, or casein or something that are stuck through the, the, uh, the gut mucosa and what we call leaky gut, it's not going to have a lot of bandwidth to be fighting bacteria. It, get, it gets pooped out, and I see this again on testing. I see somebody's got a really upregulated IgA when I do a test, and then over time it just starts to drift down until it just can't do anything. The immune system goes, I've had enough. I can't handle this. And that's when you start having issues that, that heretofore might have been under control, like, let's say, a Lyme infection. It starts to rear its ugly head. It gets out, it gets out of the cage, so to speak. So when, when you're looking at all of this, um, how would you look at the immune system, for, especially for somebody with chronic infections or um, something like that going on? Is there... Aside from what you just said, the FUT2 and the IgA, is there other things that can um, kind of be a red flag for you? Uh, G6PD has iron, iron modulation, HFE, uh, iron modulation. Um, iron levels are, are somewhat controlled by uh, bacteria, right, infection. Um, I keep an eye on that. But my approach to, to this is maximize all the pathways. Don't just focus on the immune system. But there's but there are hints for certain people who have autoimmune conditions where their immune system is just going crazy, attacking their thyroid, attacking their uh, parietal cells that line their stomach, attacking their pancreas. And, and you can't really see what tissues are under attack unless you do a Cyrex or Ray 5 test. But in that case, the immune system is being diverted away from its real job, which is to keep pathogens out of our system. So in those cases, when you see that, do you still you work on the ammonia pathway first and then you address yep. those things? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I go through. I, I do the same thing I always do um, with emphasis on I keep an eye on the immune system. We, do, we look at markers. Dietary changes are often required. Because what's always interesting to me about with Lyme infections is a lot of people get bit by a Lyme tick, but not everybody has these, you know, neurological ongoing issues. I mean, some people are are bedridden, and and the question is why? Why? You know, why do some people kind of deal with it and move on and other people, you know, have, you know, months and months and sometimes years of suffering? Well, you know, for me, I, I was bedridden. I had a lot of neurological issues with my Lyme. And uh, the ammonia pathway 
was definitely a big issue for me, as well as the um, CYP1B1 pathways, which are all red. So, you know, I was not able to methylate or detox at all. And I think yeah, that, that, yeah. that CYP1B1 pathway dumps right into COMT for, uh, for your estrogen. So you likely were probably having some estrogen dominance issues as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, when you, when you look at all these symptoms of Lyme and, you know, the list can be really long and for some people it's not. And I think just like what you said, it, it does come down to our blueprint and how we're dealing with the toxins created by this, um, you know, the infections because they are highly toxic themselves, but also with the treatment because some people are, you know, life is tolerable and still until they start treatment. And these things traditionally don't get looked at. You know, you just put on mm-hmm. high dose of antibiotics and, and sent on your way and people get sicker. And, uh, you know, I took antibiotics for only one month because I knew it was not the right thing. And I treated myself with herbs having to deal with the methylation as the biggest issue for me. And um, I was told that my reaction to the antibiotics was the herxing like just, you know, that's what happens. But for me, it wasn't. It was creating more toxicity. In my body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people with people that have, let's say, leaky gut, which is more common than you think, um, because our response to our foods now—it's not just a little temporary transient inflammation; it's ongoing inflammation. Um, when you take antibiotics, you're and you you're unwittingly killing off your good gut bacteria. The some of the bad. Uh, bad actors like Candida albicans can get a foothold and they release toxins. So now if you've got a leaky gut and you've got something in your gut, you know, making toxins or you're killing something that's making toxins, it's going to get into your, into your, uh, it's going to have access to your body, right? Your immune system, your brain, especially if you have a leaky blood brain barrier, it's really a catch 22. And, Another thing I see often is people who have done the antibiotic route for Lyme, if they cycle through a uh, fluoroquinolone like Leviquin or Cipro, those two antibiotics, which are common, common antibiotics now, can cause permanent damage to people, especially if they have a certain genetic you know, pattern. They have superoxide dismutase 2, they have G6PD. Uh, those people can get harmed from the antibiotics. And it looks like they're harmed from the Lyme, but it's the actual antibiotics causing connective tissue problems and neurological problems. Well, and, and it it makes sense to me that you would look at the the person's blueprint before treating them so that you can open up those pathways so that anything that they need to treat after that, you know, goes easier for them instead of making them bedridden or more toxic or, you know, I've seen uh, people after hardcore treatments go the opposite direction that they meant to just because they're so highly toxic afterwards. Yeah. when, When we talk about methylation pathways and we're actually talking about a big network of pathways, those pathways support liver detox. And so if those pathways are not moving properly, then if you create more toxins, 
it's it's going to be difficult, right? Because now you've now you're kind of you know poisoning yourself because you you're not clearing those toxins, and so you do the pathway work first, and then potentially address uh, with antibiotics or some of these other uh, you know medications that are that are being used. Even herbs. I mean, herbs can be very powerful too. You want those mm-hmm. pathways working and open so you can detox. Um, something that we haven't really talked about, but, but it relates back to your CYP1B1 issue. There are a couple other SNPs that, that are in combination with CYP1B1. Um, uh, PEMT, COMT, MAT, there's certain com- BHMT, there's certain combination of SNPs where uh, if you're a woman who's cycling, right, you're cycling through estrogen progesterone, you're at a much higher risk of making, having your liver make what we call sludgy bile, right? Sludgy bile, meaning that uh, ultimately if over time you can develop gallstones and then the gallbladder comes out. Well, that sludgy bile, part of the function of bile is when the toxins are, are removed by the liver, uh, they're actually conjugated and made water-soluble. That's put into the bile, the bile is an exit strategy, right? So the bile is stored in our gallbladder. When we eat fatty foods, that bile is released into our digestive system, and eventually we poop it out. That's the whole point. So that bile is a vehicle to remove toxins from the body. Now, if that bile is sludgy and it's not flowing well, then you're going to get backed up with toxins too. So this is another reason to understand what your, what your genetics are doing, how, you're, how you could be expressing. And a big red flag is somebody who is from a family where mom had the gallbladder out or they've had gallbladder pain, uh, you know, gallbladder attacks, and you know you're having some issues with detoxification as well as uh, estrogen clearing. Um, so, Cynthia, this um, is a very fascinating topic for me, and I think we could probably do 10 shows on it and talk in detail about it, but unfortunately, we are going to have to end the show. Um, now, is there anywhere that um, people can reach you if they have more questions about this? Sure. I have a website. It's undergoing construction finally. I, I did it myself, and it's not really that good, but you can reach me at uh, my website, and the, the website is w www.lifezonewellness.com and then my email address is is c.smith at lifezonewellness.com and then the compendium is SNP Bit Compendium 1 Um, it's out, I think you can get it on Amazon or you can get it through my website but I will be updating it uh, in the next couple of months to add some more pathways and um, add some new research to it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Rebecca. Um, So this was a great show. We were talking today with Cynthia Smith, who is the co-author of the Snippet Compendium 1. Next week, we're going to be talking with Teresa Tapp and Mary J. Solomon, uh, sorry, Shulman, about um, the thyroid diet revolution and tea tapping. Uh, So join us next week and make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. 
Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.